Well, let me invite you to uh, open your Bibles now with me to Job chapter 13. And I want to read verse 15 for you. Job chapter 13, verse 15. It's one of the more uh, famous verses in the book of Job. Uh, most people, if you think of the book of Job, this is a verse that may very well come in mind. But Job is speaking in chapter 13, verse 15, and he says these words, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Nevertheless, I will argue my ways before him. This is a, a verse that um, many people love. Many people have been blessed by, encouraged by. The King James renders this a bit different. Uh, I will trust in Him. And the word uh, actually <clears throat> carries literally the idea of waiting. And I think the idea of waiting and hope is primarily what this word is referring to. Though He slay me, I will wait and hope in Him. Charles Spurgeon made an astute statement. He said, some statements cannot be made by ordinary men. Some statements only come from exceptional men with exceptional experiences. For example, this statement. If there are as many devils at worms as there were tiles on the housetops, I will go there in God's name. Who do you think said that? There's only one guy who could kind of make that statement and that's Martin Luther, right? And this is uh, because at the Diet of Worms he was facing a tremendous danger to his own life, but he speaks in such boldness and confidence of, of God. An exceptional man with exceptional experiences. How about this one? That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Can an ordinary man say that? In an ordinary circumstance? Who said it? Well, Neil Armstrong in 1969 we landed on the moon and took his first step. And he made these incredible words. Well, the same thing is true for Job's words in chapter 13, verse 15. Though he slay me, kill me, I will hope in him. These words are spoken from an exceptional believer going through exceptional experiences. These are the words that cannot fall from the lips of an ordinary believer. The one who is a master sufferer. Who had descended into the very depths of misery and grief. Having had all of his wealth taken from him. Having lost all of his children. Having been physically covered with agonizing boils with his friends bent only on accusing him of being a hypocrite and his own wife turning on him, telling him to curse God and die. 
Here is a man all alone, sitting in a pile of ashes, suffering at a degree that we know not of. An exceptional man in exceptional circumstances. And yet out of the abyss of his agony arises these arises this incredible statement of faith and trust and hope. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. This is where I want to end up at the end of our lesson today. But we got to start back in chapter 9 because we ended in chapter 8 last time. So I want us to kind of walk through, emphasize some of the key points leading up to this particular statement. So we're going to go all the way back now to Job chapter 9 and look at the context out of which these amazing words arise. Chapter 9, Job is now going to spend chapter 9 and 10 responding to the words of Bildad. Bildad in chapter 8 had accused Job of challenging God's justice. And he counsels Job that if he but turns from his sin and seeks after God, then God will restore to him his joy and his happiness. So in response to Bildad, you just look through chapter 9 and 10, my summary outline, and this is his response. There's no righteousness before God. I have no hope. There's no umpire between us. I have no answers. I have no understanding. I have no comfort. Here's a man who is suffering intensely. Just to highlight a few verses, look at chapter 9, verse 2. In truth, I know that it is so. He's responding to Bildad's uh, comment that basically God blesses the righteous and punishes the wicked. He says in verse 2, In truth, I know that this is so. But how can a man be right before God? How can any man be really righteous before God? And so he's struggling with these accusations that he's a great sinner. And he knows that he can't be perfectly righteous before a holy God. In verse 3 and following, he says, if one wished to dispute with him, and the word dispute here is a technical term for bringing a lawsuit against somebody. He says in verse 3, if, if, if one wished to have a lawsuit against God, he could not answer him once in a thousand times. There's no way I can, I can defend my righteousness before God, Job is saying. <clears throat> we find that throughout the rest of this paragraph that Job is bringing in creation, bowing to God's sovereignty. That if you look down, and if you look at verse 11, he says, were he to pass by me, I would not see him. Were he to move past me, I would not perceive him. God is invisible. There's no way that anybody could win a lawsuit against a God this mighty and a God who's invisible. There's no way. I have no righteousness before God. And so he's struggling with that. In the next paragraph, he says, <clears throat> I really have no hope. In verse 13 and following, He's crying out, just speaking of the impossibility of justifying himself before a holy God. Look at verse 14. 
How then can I answer him, assuming there's a lawsuit that they were brought before a judgment bar together? How then can I answer him, verse 14, and choose my words before him? For though I were right, I could not answer, and I would have to implore the mercy of my judge. And he goes on to describe, for example, in verse 17, For he bruises me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. In other words, he's saying, if I, if I go with a lawsuit, if I bring God to court somehow, which is impossible to do, He will charge me with blame without cause. He will multiply my wounds without cause. So again, he's still struggling with questioning God's justice. He's going to basically wound me without cause because I haven't done anything that deserves this level of suffering. So you can see that he's totally frustrated. In verse 21 and 22, he says, I am guiltless. I do not take notice of myself. I despise my life. It is all one, therefore I say, he destroys the guiltless and the wicked. In other words, I am without guilt, he says, in terms of meriting the suffering that I'm going through. But at the end of verse 22, he says of God, he destroys the guiltless, the innocent, and the wicked. So again, Job is struggling with these accusations against God. That I'm not guilty of this, but God is doing these things to me. So he's finding himself without any hope of reprieve, without any hope of justification in this passage. Who moves on in verse 25 through 35, and he says basically, there's no one who can judge between me and God either. There's no umpire. So look at verse 28. He says, I'm accounted wicked. Why then should I toil in vain? If I should wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, yet you would plunge me into the pit and my own clothes would abhor me. I'm sorry, I read the wrong verse at verse 28. I'm afraid of all my pains. I know that you will not equip me. I am accounted wicked. So again, he's saying that God is basically imputing, accounting him as being wicked. And he knows that within his heart, he's not. And then drop down to verse 32. For he's not a man as I am that I may answer him, that we may go to court together. There's no umpire between us who may lay His hand upon us both. And here He's not so much talking about a mediator as a judge, a neutral judge, an independent judge, who will rule between Him and God. He says there is no umpire like that. I can't bring God to court. He's punished me as if I'm a wicked person anyway. And so He's just struggling with there being no hope. No empire. No one to come in and help him. And then moving in chapter 10, he starts in the first seven verses and says, there's no answers either. Look at verse 2 of chapter 10. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend with me. Why, God? I have no answers. Why are you doing this to me? 
And then if you drop down to verse 7, according to your knowledge, I am indeed not guilty, yet there is no deliverance from your hand. Can you just sense the, the turmoil, the perplexity that Job is entering down into this dark abyss? I have no answers from you, God. And then in verses 8-17, through 17, he says, and I don't understand it. In verse 8, he says, your hands fashioned me and made me all together, and would you destroy me? Verse 9, remember now that you have made me as clay, and would you turn me into dust again? In other words, he said, God, you, you made me. Why destroy me? Again, just the, the angst that's going on within his soul. And then drop down to verse 12. You have granted me life and loving kindness. And your care has preserved my spirit. I've been the object of your, of your loving kindness, God. You have given me life. Your, your care has watched over me. Why are you destroying me? So again, you, you go through these chapters and he's just without hope. He's in despair. No answers from God. No understanding from God. And in verse 18 through 20, he closes us out by saying in verse 18, Why then have you brought me out of the womb? Would that I had died and no eye had seen me? Should I have been as though I had not been carried from womb to tomb? And so he's again wishing that he was dead. Wishing that he had never been born. Wishing that he had died when he was born. He's longing for death. That, that's the only way out that Job sees it. Sees his circumstances. And then if you look in verse 20, would He not let my few days alone withdraw from me that I may have a little cheer? Before I die, Lord, just withdraw from me so I can have a little peace before I die. Well, this is where this poor man is in all of his suffering. I mean, this is a picture of total despair and hopelessness. So if you're his friend, what are you going to say to him? Well, now comes Zophar. And Zophar is a third friend. So with Zophar's speech and Job's response, we come to the end of the first cycle. There's three cycles in the book of Job. So Zophar speaks to Job in chapter 12. I'm sorry, chapter 11, verse 1. Then Zophar the Namathite answered, Shall a multitude of words go unanswered? And a talkative man be acquitted? Shall your boast silence men? And shall you scoff and none rebuke? So he's saying, Job, all you're doing is scoffing. You need to be rebuked. You're just a talkative man. You're just multiplying your words. But how can you expect to be acquitted? God is punishing you because of your great sin. That's kind of the, the idea. Verse 4, For you have said, My teaching is pure and I am innocent in your eyes. 
But would that God might speak and open His lips against you and show you the secrets of wisdom. For sound wisdom has two sides. Know then that God forgets a part of your iniquity. In other words, Job, God isn't even punishing for all your iniquities. He's forgetting some of it. So you're getting better than you deserve. So this is how Zophar just comes in and pours salt on his wounds. He comes in and he drives the stake further into his heart. This is the the friend Zophar. He's bringing these kinds of words to Job. In verse 7 through 12, Zophar actually speaks some wonderful truths about God. In verse 7, can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? They are as high as heavens. What can you do? Deeper than shale, what can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. If he passes by or shuts up or calls an assembly, who can restrain him? For he knows false men, kind of implying Job is one of the false men, and he sees iniquity without investigating. An idiot will become intelligent when the foal of a wild donkey is born a man. And what Zophar is doing here is he's basically insulting Job in effect. He's speaking in, in general great truths about God's, God's greatness, God's omniscience. Verse 11, he sees iniquity without investigating. Reminds me of Proverbs 15.11, Sheol and Abaddon lie open before the Lord. How much more the hearts of men. He doesn't have to investigate. He sees it. His gaze, his eyes are like x-rays. They penetrate to the bone. He sees everything in us. And so Zophar is actually saying things that are true about God. But as we have noted earlier, he abuses the text. He abuses his knowledge about God because he uses this great magnificent picture of God's greatness and omniscience as a wooden backdrop to nail Job to, to accuse him as being a false man, an idiot, to accuse him of being sinful. That's why God is punishing him. So he speaks wonderful truths about God, but he misuses it in this particular context. You know, it's so easy for us to misunderstand the ways of providence. Job's friends believed that they had God figured out. Actually, they all thought this way. God rewards and blesses the righteous and He punishes and abuses the wicked. That's their God. And even though they understand the greatness of God as this incredible speech 7 through 12 indicates they're binding God to their rules of what and how God should respond to people and their logic and the way they see things. And this is where they make a great mistake. They understand the bigness of God, the greatness of God, but they're tying God down by 
forcing this great God to fit within their rules that they have set for how God should act with sinners. It kind of reminds me of the story of (laughs) Jonathan Swift's Gulliver Travels. Maybe you've read the book when Gulliver enters into the land of the little Pusians who were... All these people were six inches tall. Remember the story? And they see Gulliver, this great big huge man. And he was so big, he must be a danger. So when Gulliver laid down to sleep, all the little Pusians came out with their ropes and they threw the ropes over Gulliver and they tied him and pinned him down to the ground. That's what we try to do with God. This is a fool's errand, of course. But this is what we do with God. We take this almighty God who is sovereign over all things, infinitely wise, and we tie Him down saying God has to act this way. God has to do it this way according to what we think God should do. And that's the philosophy of Job's friends. Job really was succumbed to this thinking as well. But again, it's impossible. They saw a big God as a danger. Some God that would act contrary to their understanding must be a danger. So, so they tie God down so He has to bless the righteous and He has to bless, uh, curse and, and punish the wicked. God does anything for any other reason. He, he won't do that. They, bond, they bound Him down and tied Him down. But of course... This is their folly. This is where they misunderstand God. God had to rebuke other people in Psalm 50 when He said, you thought that I was just like you. You thought I had to act like you act. You thought that me, Almighty God, I'm just like you. And He rebuked them because He's not like us. God is sovereign. And God does things that we don't understand. We can't pin Him down to fit within our little box or tie Him down so that He can only act in certain ways. That's the counsel of Zophar. And so he comes back and ends his little speech, point number three, in verses 13 through 20, by telling Job that if he will confess his sin, then all will be well. Look at verse 13. Chapter 11. If you would direct your heart right and spread out your hand to Him, if iniquity is in your hand, put it far away. And do not let wickedness dwell in your tents. Then indeed, you could lift up your face without moral defect, and you would be steadfast and not fear. For you would forget your trouble as waters that have passed by, you would remember it. So again, he's just coming back against Job saying, Job, if you would just uh, really confess your sins, put your sins far away from you, then God will bless you. So that's how he challenges Job. Job now gives his response in verses 12-13. through 13. And the first thing he does is he challenges their understanding of his circumstances. Look at uh, verse 1 of chapter 12. Then Job responded, Truly then, you are the people, and with you wisdom will die. 
But I have intelligence as well as you. I'm not inferior to you. And who does not know such things as these? I'm a joke to my friends. The one who called on God and answered Him. The just and blameless man is a joke. So he's using some sarcasm here by saying, oh, you guys have all the wisdom. But he's saying, I'm, I'm not inferior to you. Verse 5, He who is at ease holds calamity and contempt as prepared for those whose feet slip. In other words, he's saying to them, you know, it's easy for you to be critical of me because you're not in my shoes. And really, that's really true. Until we enter into someone's world and understand what they're going through, better be careful about condemning or speaking against them because we don't know. We can totally misinterpret it. That's what he's saying about these guys. He says, yeah, you can be critical of me. You can judge me because you're not going through what I'm going through. And that's the essence basically of verse 5. Those who are at ease, like you guys are, hold calamity and contempt. I've got the calamity. You're holding me in contempt, but you're in ease. You just don't understand because you're not in my shoes. Verse 6 is very interesting. Job says, the tents of the destroyers prosper. Huh? And those who provoke God are secure. What? Whom God brings into their power. What, he, what he's saying in verse 6 is that look around you. We all need to look around and see that by experience in verse 6, those who destroy things, they're the ones who are prospering. And those who provoke God, they're in security. How does that fit with this notion of retributive justice that God always punishes the wicked and blesses the right? Look around you. The wicked are prospering. How does that fit with this philosophy that basically we've all embraced? And what God is doing here is very important is He's, he's using Job's experiences to, to begin to open his eyes to new truth about God. That you can't tie God down to act in ways that we think are just or we think are right. That God is sovereign and His wisdom is far beyond our ability to understand. They're not there yet. But as they look around, they say, you know what? There's wicked people over here. And I mean, they're blessed. This is Psalm 73. The wicked, man, they have long lives. They have health. I mean, they have money just rolling out of their pockets. And the righteous, look at them. Many of them are suffering. I don't understand it. Psalm 73 again. So Job is, is there in that same condition about a thousand years before Psalm 73 was written. So from here, Job goes on in verse 7 through 12, and he again calls upon the mighty hand of God. If you look at verse 9, among all these, referring to the animals above, who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this, and whose, whose hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind? 
In other words, we see that these things are going on and who doesn't know that it's the hand of God doing it? Sometimes the wicked prosper. Sometimes the wicked are secure in their life and the righteous suffer. This is the hand of God, he's saying. And then he goes on and speaks of the sovereignty of God starting in verse 13. For with Him, and this is really a wonderful passage, with Him are wisdom and might. To Him belong counsel and understanding. Behold, He tears down and it cannot be rebuilt. He imprisons man and there can be no release. Behold, He restrains the waters and they dry up. And He sends them out and they inundate the earth. With Him are strength and sound wisdom. The misled and the misleader belong to Him. He makes counselors walk barefoot and makes fools of judges. And then he goes in, goes on, talks about kings and priests and nobles and strong men. And then in verse 23, he makes the nations great, then destroys them. He enlarges the nations and then leads them away. He deprives of intelligence the chiefs of earth's people. All he's doing is, is Job is just referring back to the sovereignty of God. He is sovereign over all men. He's sovereign over all nations. And so he's trying to say that God does as God does. And it doesn't fit with our understanding of retributive justice. And so based upon this, in verses 3 through 12 of chapter 13, he basically now speaks to his friends, and he calls them worthless physicians. Verse 3 of chapter 13. But I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to argue with Him, but you smear with lies. You are all worthless physicians. Oh, that you would be completely silent, and that it would become your wisdom. And then he drops down and he says in verse 12, Your memorable sayings are proverbs of ashes. Your defenses are defenses of clay. I can just see Job sitting in that pile of ashes, grabbing a handful and saying, Your counsel to me is just like proverbs of ashes. As it all just kind of floats down. It's burnt, charred, nothing. No comfort from you. And then we come back to where we started, this amazing verse in verse 15. Though He slay me, I will hope in Him. Nevertheless, I will argue my ways before Him. In other words, Job still wants an opportunity to go to court with God. He still wants an opportunity to argue before God to try to defend his innocence from all that's been coming down upon him. He still wants that, but he says, you know what? Even if God kills me, I'm still going to hope in Him. And what's so amazing about this verse is the context that we've been walking through. Because here's a man who doesn't understand what God is doing in his life. He has no hope. He has no wisdom, no answers from God. And so he's in this very dark, gloomy place. And yet, out of the ashes comes this incredible welling up within him of hope in God. 
that even if God kills me, I will hope in Him. Now what is he hoping for? Well, he goes on to say in the next few verses, that this also will be my salvation. That behold, now I have prepared my case. I know that I will be vindicated. So his hope is that in some way, at some time, God will make it right. In some way, God will intervene and He will clear my name. He's not really asking to be restored to all of His health and wealth. He wants His name vindicated. That He has been punished falsely in His mind. But His hope is that God is a good God. In spite of all my hopelessness, and even though I don't understand and I have no answers, but in the midst of that, there's a welling up within Him by the grace of God This confident hope, I will hope in God. That ultimately, he's clinging to the goodness of God, the love of God, the care of God that he had experienced throughout so much of his life. And that in all of this, he's still going to hope in God, even if he dies. Job has been in a mental state of despair and confusion. He's in a very, very dark place. His friends have been of no help to him. But even if God seems to turn his back on Job and doesn't listen to Job, Job is still sitting in these ashes. And he, through so much of this, he, he says he has no hope. And yet out of that, the light of God's grace burns again within his heart. And I think one of the great lessons here is just don't lose hope in God. Though you don't understand your trials, though you don't understand what He's doing, God is a God that we can trust. God is a God we can still hope for because He's a, he's a good God. That He's going to work it all out one way or another. And what was it that makes this burst of hope just kind of come up out of the ashes? Well, it's, it's his review of the character of God. In these speeches that we've been looking at, he has reminded himself of God's sovereignty and God's wisdom and God's omnipotence, that God created him and has shown him loving kindness and care. And all of that begins to reignite within him his faith that hopes in God. He doesn't know the outcome, but he hopes that God, who is a good God, We'll work it all out in the end. You know, Greek mythology, the pagans, believed that the phoenix was an immortal bird that ends its life in a show of flames and combustion and then rises up out of the ashes and is born again to new life. And that pagan picture illustrates the grace of God in Job's heart. That sitting in this hopeless, dying condition, sitting in the ashes, just venting that he doesn't understand in his hopelessness, and yet out of the ashes rises this incredible hope that the grace of God has implanted there. I think what Job is teaching us in many ways, in light of the day in which he lived, is that we need to always hope in God. 
You know, we have far more light than Job did. Job understood God's sovereignty. We understand it far more because we have the entire Scripture. He understood God's wisdom. We understand it more. He understood God's omnipotence. The Scriptures that He did not have that we have reveal that all the more to us. The depth of His loving kindness and care. The promises of His constant presence with us. The promises that He works all things for our good. That He has a good plan for us. That He loves us. That we have glory to come. We have that truth, that light more clear in our minds and hearts than Job did. And if out of the ashes of his hopelessness he could find hope in God, how much more should we? The enemy wants you to lose hope. But we need to always remember that come what may, whether it's tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. America may crater and fall. And we may lose every blessing and every freedom. Let's just say that happened. We of all people should have hope in God. Regardless of what happens in our life, we of all people should have hope in God. Because we know the character of the God whom we serve and the God whom we love. And though Job's faith and our faith may be beaten down at times and trampled in the dust, though we may fall and falter in confusion with doubts and discouragement, though trials may threaten to swallow us whole, faith will not die, hope will not die, Because God's grace will not die. And out of the ashes of our trials, the grace of God will sustain His people and give them hope. Remember with Abraham, who God promised that he would be a father of many nations. And he looked at his circumstances and he said, I'm too old, I can't have kids. Sarah's too old, her womb is is dead. But the Scriptures say in Romans 4, in hope against hope, he believed that he would be a father of many nations. That's a faith, a hope that's in God's promises, in God's character. So that we can rejoice in Isaiah 40 with the words that says that those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. And you know, when you hope in God, you've got to wait. Hoping and waiting fit together. Because you have to wait for what you hope for. And Isaiah says that those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. And ultimately, our hope is found in Christ. Christ alone. His blood. His righteousness. Because Christ gives hope. Without Christ, there is no hope. But with Christ, there is a confident hope. Because Christ conquered for us our sin on the cross. 
He conquered a far greater suffering than Job ever experienced or that you and I will ever experience when He bore the very wrath of God to save us from our sins. He has given us hope. Hope in salvation. Hope in sanctification. Hope in glorification. The blood of Christ has won all of that for us. He gives that to us. And we can have hope that God will bring that to pass in His good timing. Peter says that we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away reserved in heaven for you. So we have this hope in Christ. And we should have that hope. And if you don't have that hope, hope in the Lord. Hope that every trial you're going through has a meaning. Hope that every pain you're experiencing has a purpose. Hope that good will be brought out of it as He has promised us in His Word. Hope that He's promised to supply all of our needs according to His grace in Christ Jesus. And hope that, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for Thou art with me. Hope in God's presence. Hope in God's promises. Hope in His love, His goodness, His care. And for those who struggle in times of despair, what they need is hope. That's why the psalmist wrote in Psalm 42 to himself, Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise Him for the help of His presence. If you're in despair, hope in God. His help is on the way. He will again enable you and help you. And and that will result in you praising Him for the help of His presence. It's coming according to His timing, His way, but hope in God. I think that's what Job teaches us. That regardless of what life is throwing at us, hope in God. It may look grim. It may look terrible. But God is working it all out for the good. Maybe not the way that I want, but the way that He sees is best. So that even if things get worse and if things get really, really bad, whether it's in our personal lives, our business, our family lives, or within our nation, as William Cowper wrote, let us put our hope confidently in the Lord, trusting that behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. It's always there. Hope in God. Hope is that anchor of the soul. And those who live their life without hope have a miserable experience. But when the world strips everything away and we're empty-handed, let our hope be in the Lord. Let us imitate our ancient brother who could say so profoundly, such an exceptional man with such exceptional experiences of suffering, and yet he could say, though he slay me, I will hope in him. And may that hope live in your hearts and in my heart 
as we trust in the character of God and trust in the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ, which gives us great hope.